1: This summer, when the sun's down, turn up the fun at Cedar Point Nights. The ultimate after-dark beach party is every night from July 29th through August 21st. Dance with throwback DJ sets, challenge your friends with beach games, or just take it easy at fire pits lining Cedar Point's legendary mile Long Beach. Then enjoy the new Lake Erie Luau, a food experience like no other. For a limited time, get park admission, luau tastings, and parking for just $69.99. Only at CedarPoint.com.
0: Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. Thank you for coming back, thank you for joining us on this wonderful uh, penultimate episode to episode 100. This isn't penultimate as in we're finishing, this is penultimate as in episode number 99. This is quite a fascinating episode and one I don't think many people know the story of. The man we're talking about today... Will go down in history as just George the Third, or the Mad King, what he was also known. He's also known as the King who lost the colonies, or the last King of America. Um, a very strange story to be covering, um, and one I think is very necessary. Um, as King George, although was known as the Mad King, Um, is remembered for, I would say, the wrong things. Um, So very much like Will Smith at the Oscars, he's not going to be remembered for winning the Oscar. He's going to be remembered for slapping Chris Rock. Uh, George III is remembered for the Mad King. He's not remembered for um, the fact that we wouldn't have Buckingham Palace without him. We wouldn't have the British Library without him. Um, we wouldn't have the monarchy that we have today without him. So he's um, he's a very a very poignant man in British history, uh, but someone who has been kind of lost to history because his last sort of ten years of his life were were a bit of a downfall. Um, now George III uh, was actually king for sixty years. Okay, so he is actually the longest reigning British king. Um, of all time uh, which I don't see Charles beating when he takes the throne soon as he's 75 at the moment um, so don't see him beating that. William again possibly not so uh, you know he may end up being the the longest serving king for a very very long time. Um, he was born on the 4th of June 1738 in a place called St James Square at uh, a Norfolk house in westminster so he was born in central london his father was frederick the prince of wales and his grandfather was king george ii uh, king george ii was king from 1727 up until 1760. now i'll give you a little bit of perspective at this time england or britain uh, great britain and ireland as it was known um was ruled by a Hanoverian monarchy okay so the Georgians which is George the first George second George third George the fourth uh these were in a succession Uh, we we got very creative with our names um they were all German okay now this does lead people to say today that the monarchy for example is is technically German which they are um, they have a German heritage that goes back to this Hanoverian monarchy. Um, the name changed in the early 20th century due to going to war with Germany. Many people didn't particularly like the German surname of our monarchy, so they changed it over to Windsor. Um, but that's sort of a digression, but George III was actually the first king of England from this particular family, to be born in England. So he had a bit more ties to the land. And the reason for this is at the end of the Stuart reign in 1714, Queen Anne had left no heirs to the throne. The nobles of Great Britain were looking for uh, the next in line, and what they did not want was a Catholic king or queen, so they went to the nearest Protestant relatives, which just happened to be uh, George the of Hanover. So he came over, took the throne of England. Uh, his son then took the throne, George II, and his son Frederick was in line to take the throne next. George III, his mother was also uh, German. She was uh, her name was Augusta. Um, she was again from a, a prominent German household so you can see where the links uh, have come from and, and Britain at this time relied very very heavily on its parliament okay very much like today this may be one of the main reasons why Britain turned away from the idealistic monarchy or from the the dictatorship of a monarchy almost um, and moved to this um, sort of system that we have today where the monarchy works in power with uh, with the parliament i would say this is mainly due to the fact that people probably wouldn't have responded very well to a king dictating like henry the eighth used to or or you know any predecessors from that elizabeth the first mary the first um, james the first to an extent as well <clears throat> so any kings like this they probably wouldn't have reacted too well considering George I and George II could barely speak English. They were German through and through, um, which would have caused problems, as I'm sure you can imagine. Trying to rule a country, utilitarianism, with not being able to speak the language, can cause some issues. George I was brought up to speak both German and English, as I'm sure you can imagine. He was supposedly um intellectually challenged um in, in his early life there was a lot of conflicting stories saying that he was um yeah intellectually challenged there's not many many other ways of describing that but um this turned out to be pretty much a falsehood um he he grew into Grew into it. He learnt French um, as well, so he then could speak three languages. Um, he was quite good at music and arts and literature. He was a keen writer um, and a keen collector of books. Um, so he he was a very learned man, but um, potentially at a younger age, didn't really show uh, didn't show his full potential. He was also um, very keen on astrology, which was obviously a new concept I mean obviously astrology has been around for centuries but it was a a new concept for like a king to have that sort of ability to be able to read the stars um, and and navigate and he was also a very keen clock maker to be very careful saying that but he was very keen on clocks um, which oh I don't I'm not really sure why there's not really much information as to why uh, but he was very keen on clocks like saying that because it brings, a, brings that little risk with the podcast. So George is second in line to the throne of England. Now, unfortunately for George, uh, his father passes away in 1751, which makes him the sole heir to the throne of England. At this point in his life, he's almost too young to take the throne. Um, luckily, his grandfather does hold on for another nine years uh, and George III takes the throne of England in 1760 at the young age of just 22. Now I'll give you a little bit of a perspective of George's early reign. When he takes the throne Britain is in the middle of the Seven Years' War with France, the war that started four years earlier and ended in 1763. Now this war was favourable to Britain on many, many accounts. Uh, It gave Britain the lands in the colonies. It gave Britain New France, which was uh, Canada. Um, Britain, basically, at the end of the Seven Years' War, came out as the top dog in Europe. Well, To be fair, they pretty much were prior to that anyway, but we had to just push the French down a little bit. But it just gives you an idea that a young king, 22 years old, um, comes into his throne and immediately is in the middle of uh, a European war that, that stretches right the way across the British Empire. It goes all the way out to the colonies, um, the Caribbean, and uh, into Canada. Now, he has a bit of a problem, because George III, the only way to secure his line of succession is to marry. Um, now he did find um, a lady that he quite liked um, prior to his marriage Um, unfortunately she was not of the right class uh, for him to marry which is something that the royals have kind of dropped now but at that point you know you had to marry the right person and they found her a German princess um, named charlotte she was of a place called mecklenburg strelitz um, now she arrived in britain within six hours of her arriving in britain she was married to king george the in fact they never actually met until their wedding day uh, until the walking up the aisle so a bit of a strange marriage but a political one nonetheless and it was a good marriage, believe it or not. They were they were married for a long time. Um, they had 15 children in that time. And allegedly, King George III was faithful throughout the entire marriage. Now, that to me doesn't sound like a big deal. Because, you know, I'm married. Uh, You know, being faithful comes with being married. But for a king at this point in history... It's quite a big deal, you know. Uh, I'm pretty sure when we see things like um, Game of Thrones, for example, that's the the way I see it. Um, if anyone's not seen Game of Thrones, uh, Robert Baratheon is probably the the most common one that I would I would assume with kings of this era. Um, you've got your wife, but realistically, you can do whatever you want. Um, George the Third. Apparently, not like that in any way, shape or form. And he was only loyal to his wife, as a man should be. George was very lucky um, in the sense that he took over a very powerful country. He took over the most powerful country in the world. Um, By winning the Seven Years' War, or finishing the Seven Years' War uh, with a victory, he cemented Britain as the foremost power in the world. London was becoming the financial capital of the world, the home of trade for one of the for the biggest empire of the time. Uh, France, the noisy neighbor, had been squashed um, to to almost a nothingness. The British Navy ruled the seven seas. Uh, there was nobody that could touch the British Navy. Industry was growing. The start of the Industrial Revolution uh, was coming in, or or not not the official industrial revolution but industries and those ideas were coming into forefront capitalism was coming into forefront and people were began beginning to uh to to buy and and sell and and do things on a scale similar to what we see today this all started around the 1760s so when george took the throne he took on a very, very strong country, a very strong economy. And thanks to the English Civil War, he took on a country that that split its power in the right way. So when we talk about France, for example, France was a monarchist country. It was an absolute monarchist country. And as soon as you have a weak king or a weak queen in a country that relies solely on a monarchy, there are big terms of instability and as we saw in France, you had the French Revolution, where the king can lose their head. So, obviously, him coming into into England at this time as as king was quite lucky. I would say he he took on took on England at probably one of its best times in history, where it was expanding and growing. And um, like I said, just it was it was the dominant force in the world now that sounds all well and good however we did have a few problems in this country at this time um the main one being parliament which obviously held the majority of the power in england was actually quite divided there were two political parties one was the whigs which would be equivalent to the modern day labor liberal party And the other was the Tories, which is the equivalent to the modern-day Conservative Party. And these two parties had contrasting views and would argue quite a lot in Parliament. And this would lead to issues within Parliament and and obviously a change of regime would come with a change of political system, Um, so a change of taxation, a change of capitalism, a change of, of, of everything... Depending on which party was in power, very much like it is today, with this turmoil that was going through the British politics, Britain was unable to secure a political party to reign for for a long period of time. Um, so you had the Tories would be uh, political, uh, you know, in charge for maybe six six to eighteen months, um, and then it would flip over to the Whigs. Then it would go back and forth and back and forth. Um, And it actually didn't get secured until uh, William Pitt the Elder, okay? Now, there's a man called William Pitt. Um, His son was also um, Prime Minister at uh, a later date, which is why William Pitt the Elder, obviously there's one called the Younger as well. William Pitt the Elder formed a cabinet in 1766 and was Prime Minister for two years until 1768. But again, as you can see, not a very long time when you consider someone like david cameron who was prime minister for 12 years um there's a bit of a difference there he was succeeded or succeeded by uh frederick north or lord north who was head of the tory party now he came to power in 1770 as prime minister and was prime minister for 12 years so this was the first real push but William Pitt the Elder is an important figure in British history because of what he managed to do Uh, but Lord North was the one who lasted quite a long time. After Lord North the next Prime Minister was William Pitt the Younger he was in office from 1783 to 1801 he was then Prime Minister again from 1804 to 1806 so up until William Pitt the Elder, British politics was in a a decline, a bit of a turmoil, and we then found three Prime Ministers in a row uh, that brought quite a lot of stability to the country and um, a lot more peace. So with there being a strong political system and a strong leader in the political system, they were able... Uh, George III was able to actually be a pretty good king. Had there not have been this decent political system in place, it would have thrown up a lot more problems for the young king. So, the last king of America is what he's known as. And I'm sure many of you have heard of Lord North. And this is mainly because he was the Prime Minister during the American Revolution in 1776. Oh, to look at the American Revolution, you've got to look at how America started as a country and where the first colony was settled in, uh, Jamestown in Virginia. Uh, the British then moved over, took over New England. You then had Quakers fleeing religious persecution in England come over and settle in, uh, sort of the, the northeastern seaboard uh, Massachusetts and that area and you've then got the colonies extending uh, down to the Carolinas um, and to places like Pennsylvania where which was uh, originally a Dutch colony um, so the Dutch had a, had a hand in that um, they also managed to lose uh, New Amsterdam which became New York for those of you who don't know um, so, New York used to be New Amsterdam, but uh, the British sort of that one. Um, and we, you know, the, the colonies expanded from there. The vast majority of Americans' settlers at this time were British. They were first-generation um, Americans. They'd not been, you know, they, they'd traveled across. So, you then getting into a situation where. Britain is finding it very difficult to rule the colonies mainly because they didn't they didn't really rely on it okay so america or the 13 colonies um had uh, abundance of cotton and tobacco which you know was was important to the british uh, empire but in reality they could have lived without it you had all the felt and um, fur trade um, and the, the pelts and, and things like that coming from Canada Um so that was a trade that was necessary for the British Empire it uh, it wasn't a luxury whereas cotton was seen as a bit of a luxury tobacco was certainly a luxury um, also tobacco plantations and things were a lot easier to control Um, in the West Indies, so in the Bahamas, um, Barbados, Jamaica, those places like that, they were a lot easier for Britain to control a smaller island rather than the large plantations and the large vastness of America. So Britain focused their energies on Canada, the West Indies, and India. India obviously having the spice trade, the silk trade, um, a lot of other prominent um, trades coming out of India, India was the crown jewel of the British Empire as far as uh, the monarchy was concerned. So why did Britain not fight for the colonies? This is one of the main questions. Why did George III not send the full army over there and squash the rebels? And this was mainly because it was seen as too much of an effort. It just didn't seem worth sending men to die for a cause that they didn't really care about. Um, the British didn't really care too much about losing it, um, and therefore decided not to send the full might of the British army over. There was also the fact that by the time they'd got there, or by the time they would have got there, had they have sent the army over, it would have been a much harder fight, the French had already backed the American Revolution. There was a lot of soldiers and a lot of money ploughed into this revolution and this uh, independence charge. And the, 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 the ability for the British to send troops over would have taken months, not days or hours. It would have taken months to send British soldiers over. And you'd be sending British soldiers over... Into ports that have been heavily fortified because they'd have had months to plan for this, um, into well defended and well stocked garrisons. And it would have just been I mean, I wouldn't suggest that the British would have won in that instance because it's easier to defend than it is to attack. Um, But I would suggest that they would have, if they were to be successful, it would have come at a great cost of life. Um, and a cost of life that neither Lord North or King George III really wanted. Um, they allowed the English. What I don't like is they allowed the English servicemen that were there to either be killed or captured or to to turn blue coat from red coat. Um, so but, I mean that that's uh, that's pretty much a nutshell as to why George the Third lost the colony so i put lost in quotations there i would say he kind of just gave it back also i i think from my point of view i think they kind of understood the point of the the american revolution the cry of no taxation without representation is kind of a fair point you know the fact that they weren't asking for they weren't asking for independence at that point had they have Had the Boston Tea Party gone a different way and the the English turned around and actually got down off their high horse for a minute and said, okay, what is it you actually want? Oh, you want some, you want less tax, but you also want to be represented in Parliament. Okay, well, there's 8 million people living in in England and there's 2.5 million people living in America. Yeah, okay, you should have 25 or 20% of our Parliament, which kind of makes sense they're 20% of the empire they should be or 20% of the 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 people of the empire they should be 20% of the representation in parliament um and that to me is a fair would have been a fair compromise and obviously Britain being Britain sort of went no you can't have that we're we're bigger than you we're stronger than you. we're the big bully here um so that's not going to happen um, we're just going to keep taxing you and in fact we're just going to add another tax onto you with um, the postage tax or the stamp tax and then they added the the tea tax and they just, you know, they went the, Britain went a little bit OTT in regards to taxing the colonies um, and you know, there's no wonder why it flared into um, a full-fledged rebellion um, but like I said it was going to go one way or the other they were either going to knuckle under and get on with it um to which case britain would be happy or they would rebel and we'd lose the colonies to which case britain wouldn't really care um so it was kind of a win win for britain they don't they now don't have to worry about the colonies it's nothing to do with them um this was until 1812 when america you know up until 1812 when america decided that they had bigger balls than what they thought they did and George III sent the entire British army over there and squashed them and burnt down the White House so if you you want to know how the American Revolution would have gone if Britain had sent the full might of their army in look at the war of 1812 but that's not how it went and you know to be honest I'm quite glad you know I quite like having um, America the way it is. I can't imagine if America was similar to Britain, how weird that would be. You know, America is a completely different country. It's wonderful and it's uh, it's got full of amazing people. And if it was the way Britain is, I just no, I just can't see it. So uh, it went the right way. Let's put it that way. The support in the colonies for the independence was massive. Okay, and this was guided by um, a pamphlet that was written by a man named Thomas Paine it was entitled Common Sense Um, it's actually the best selling um, book or pamphlet in American history Okay, so if you ever go get a chance to read it have a read it, it's called Common Sense and it does paint George III in a very very bad light and this is how he was viewed by the American colonies it's it's amazing to think that, well, to me this is this is pure propaganda at its best, and it does show that if you portray certain people in certain ways, it does drum up enough support to allow um, something like a revolution uh, to happen, and this is exactly what did happen. And like I said, to to all intents and purposes, we we went to war in 1775 over this. And many of you probably know more about the American Revolution than I do. Um, you know, I know bits and pieces. I've not really looked into it. It's not a huge part of British history. And what I do know is um General Cornwallis uh was not the right man to protect British interests overseas. Um, they believed that there was a lot more support for the crown and for british rule in america than there actually was and the war dragged on until 1783 which was when the treaty of paris was signed um, and the british recognized the 13 colonies as independent um, from great britain now The only thing I would say with this is, to me, that throws your Independence Day completely out of whack, because they have it down as the 4th of July, 1776, which was not the day the Declaration of Independence was made, it was just the day it was signed. Um, It was also not the day that they started the war, and it's also not the day when it was official, which was in 1783. So a country fights for their independence until they actually gain that independence. They are not independent. Um, and they gained that independence in 1783 at the Treaty of Paris. So I, I, I think, I find it strange, but it's always nice to have a date on something. But I, I do think that that was the wrong date they picked, the 4th of July, because realistically... Um, they picked a date that that was seven years too early Um, because your independence started in 1783 when Britain decided that they were no longer going to bother with the colonies Um, and they weren't going to lose more men to a fight that realistically they couldn't win. Um, You know, there's no point in trying to sugarcoat it. Britain was never going to win that war because it was too far away, and the with the French and the Spanish throwing their two pence in, Britain had no allies that would help um, in a war for their colony six thousand miles across the ocean. Um, it was just one of those things. It was always nice for the French and the Spanish to stick a dagger in the back of the British, um, and that's that's what that's what happened. So, um, like I said you guys probably know more about the revolutionary war than what i do um and like i said well you know we're only here we're 23 years 1783 we're half an hour into this episode we're only 23 years into the reign of george the third this might be one of my longest episodes ever so i do hope that you guys stick around for this um and stick around for the rest uh there might have to be uh A bit of an ad break in the middle where I go and get myself a cup of tea. Um, So yeah, so that's that's the Revolutionary War in a British nutshell, as far as it goes. Um, That's a a little bit of a taster for Paul. Um, Paul's been asking, and uh, actually not just Paul, there has been a couple of other people ask for a British perspective on the American Revolution. Um, So there's a little bit of a perspective. Obviously, we've not gone into particular battles. Um, You can go into uh, Bunkers Hill um Lexington uh the battle for New York where you know there there are many battles that you can go into um that were you know b- that with a with the British perspective so there is more to it um, and we will get an episode out just on the Revolutionary War at some point but this is one I'm going to do with with my dad so stay tuned for that one so moving on from the revolutionary war which i think we uh, we've touched on quite well there and um, definitely given you guys my opinion of that we'll look at george the third and the rest of his reign so we've got to remember that on his 60 year reign a six or seven year war does not define his entire reign so we're going to look at what happened further afield now We're going to turn to the jewel of the British Empire, which is India, or was India. Sorry, not is, because we are no longer an empire, we are a commonwealth now. Um, But yeah, it was India. India was the crown jewel in Britain's feather cap. And it was at the start of the 1860s, it was not that well owned I'm not sure if owned is the right word or discovered because obviously it was I'm not sure with the word there but I'm sure you guys can uh, fill in the blank with that word for me but essentially India only parts of India were under British rule and Britain was escalating these uh, issues into more into inland and over the next sort of 20 to 30 years Britain managed to take control of the vast majority of the Indian subcontinent, um, whether it's for good or bad. But for the for George III and for the British Empire, uh, control of India was essential um, to colonialism and essential to the Britain that we know today. Um, if it was not for the uh, the Indian uh, conquest we We just wouldn't be the country that we are now, um, and George the Third would not be recognized as the king he was you know um Britain's rule over India pretty much existed because of George the reign it 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 escalated to a handful of pockets to pretty much the entire country. We'll look a little bit further afield, believe it or not, even further than India, and we'll look at a man who goes down in history as one of the greatest navigators of all time, and that is James Cook. For those of you who don't know who James Cook is, he was the man who discovered many many of the South Pacific Islands, including Hawaii. Uh, He was the man who had the fleet that took the first settlers to Australia, uh, which was founded in New South Wales in Australia, and the man who uh, took the first settlers settlers or i put settlers in quotation uh prisoners to australia and made australia and new zealand uh britain's penal colony so for those of you who don't know australia was once where we sent our criminals um mainly because we didn't want them in our country and australia was hot and deserted and everything in australia wants to kill you so it's not uh not the friendliest place, to to send people. So that that was the the reasoning behind it. Now we look at Australia as a fully-fledged first world country, um, and it is absolutely beautiful. The first settlers that were there probably didn't think that at the time. It was more uh, they're as far away from Britain as possible. Um, But again, George III, first king of Australia. So he had a huge huge part to play in world history and and it's uh, another thing to, you know to, to look at is, is his um his reign of Australia his reign of New Zealand his uh, reign of of even areas like the Falkland Islands in in the south uh, in the South Pacific um South Pacific South Atlantic by Argentina those islands of, of completely lost the geography map on on my head there. Um it's not specific, it's the Atlantic, South Atlantic. But um you know, he he was essential to the expansion of the British Empire. And this was mainly aided by the British Navy. And at the end of the Seven Years' War, and like I said, Britain dominated the seas. They dominated the seas pretty much all the way up until the end of the Second World War. Until uh, America now with probably the biggest and, and best navy in the world. Um, well, again, that's debatable, but it's definitely the biggest navy in the world. But the the British Navy has been, for 300 years, the best navy in the world. Um, and like I said, the only reason I'm saying debatable is I believe there was a series of... Um, naval games and i put games in quotation i'm well aware of the fact that a military exercise does not equate to military might Um, but on the exercises between the british and uh, american navy um, that were meant to last i believe around 48 hours within the first hour or two britain had sunk And I put sunk again in quotations, but had sunk the vast majority of the US fleet. Um, Whether that's due to the fact that our sailors are better trained or whether we just had a good day or whether it's due to the fact that we had different equipment to America, I I do not know. I I know for actual might and power of strength, um, America have the biggest army and the biggest uh, navy in the world. Um, but, uh, unfortunately guys, you can't beat 300 years of, uh, naval power in the sea. So I, I would, uh, I would go down that road. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a naval man. Uh, my dad actually is, he's a big, big naval fan. So I'd, I'd be interested to know what his, uh, his opinion is on, uh, whether the British Navy is still the most powerful Navy on the seven seas. Um, I would say probably not nowadays, but, uh, we'll leave that for you guys to debate so if you've heard the saying the sun never sets on the British Empire, that comes from George III, because George III was the first king uh, of which the sun was always up at one part of the British Empire whether that was Australia India, Britain the Falklands or Canada Britain, there was a sun up somewhere in Britain So this all sounds rather positive. King George III comes to the throne at 22 years old. He fights for India. He fights for Australia. He does lose the colonies in America, but he makes up for that. He wins the Seven Years' War. He crushes the French Navy. He turns Britain into the dominant world power on the the global scale. And the sun never sets on the British Empire. But, George III was a very ill man. It was believed that he had a liver disease that could cause bouts of insanity. Now, there's reports that he actually had purple urine on some occasions, which goes along with this story that there was um, a problem with his liver. And when the toxins build up, he succumbs to this almost mental state um, where it's it's not sure whether he can rule the government are not sure and he himself is not sure whether his mental capacity is right for a monarch and this plagues him his entire life and in 1788 he falls into a huge bout of chronic mania. Now historians have speculated whether he had um, a mental disease or whether it was uh, the liver disease. We we will never know um, because well, we just will never know. We can't exhume the body to that extent, and uh, it's uh, unfortunate because. Because of this, George III uh, got his his nickname of the Mad King. Sometimes his bouts got so bad um, he was prone to violent outbursts, um, cr- uh, almost um, chronic writing. So he would write and write and write and write like a you can imagine a, a crazed scientist writing on a on a blackboard. But he used to do that with pen and paper. Um, he was foaming at the mouth in in and certain circumstances. You know, there there really was a call to whether he was actually capable of running the country as king. Um, to the point that Parliament actually started to make plans for his son and heir, George the Fourth, to take the throne. Um, so there was there was a lot of ifs and buts going around the country at this time although from an outside perspective britain looked strong and powerful um, inside with the king the way he was britain was uh, was very very weak and could crumble at any time and and the parliament knew this and this is why they were making a contingency plan should the king have to abdicate the throne Many of you are probably noticing that around this time, in 1780, while George is going a bit mad, they might remember a certain thing that was going on in France in the late 1780s. And 1789 saw the start of the French Revolution. For those of you who are not aware of the French Revolution, it was essentially... The French people rising up and taking down the monarchy. Louis Sixteenth was ousted in 1792 and executed in 1793. And he was executed by the people. Uh, they took him out as absolute monarch. They reinstalled a parliament or a republic. Uh, France became the Republic of France no longer controlled by a monarchy they uh, beheb- beheb- beheaded put your teeth in Daniel he they beheaded Louis the 16th and his wife Marie Antoinette in 1793 this was an act that George the Third denounced drastically he said it was the work of savages um, and he was frightened this was a revolution that was sweeping the nation of france it could have swept across the channel people realize that you don't need a monarch to rule a country especially if the monarch is not that good louis the 16th had his problems george the third had his problems if the people were to turn against him he could have found himself on the executioner's block and he knew this he was well aware of this especially with Britain having a well established parliament could quite easily have meant that no monarchy uh, would have meant a return to the old days of Cromwell Lord Protector and things like that and for those of you who have put two and two together yes at the end of the French Revolution we saw Napoleon Napoleon Bonaparte the emperor who became the emperor of France, and the start of the Napoleonic Wars, another war that Britain found themselves in the middle of under George III's reign. George III did have one feather in his cap at this point. The man in charge of Parliament was William Pitt the Younger. Very, very famous man and a very, very good statesman. One of the most famous prime ministers in British history. And if it was not for William Pitt the Younger, George III would have had a much tougher reign than what he did have and also may have found himself, like I said, on that executioner's block. It was William Pitt the Younger that informed the British people of what was going on in France, that turned the British people against the French Revolution, that set the British army up against Napoleon. Without it, that man, we could have been looking at a very different country to what we're looking at now. And William Pitt the Younger is probably worth an episode on his own. He's a very interesting character and had a very good 20 years as Prime Minister. It's important to note that the wars with France were separate, okay? So this was... Roughly a 20-year period where Britain was at war with France, but the first five years were what we call the French Revolutionary Wars. This was where France went to war with Prussia and later Great Britain. One of the reasons France was able to go to war with both Prussia and Great Britain, later then, in the same war, Portugal and Spain all at the same time, was they were the first country to bring in national service or national subscription to the population of their country, which meant they had a lot more men on the battlefield and a lot more men of fighting age ready to take up arms for France. In 1797, after five years, this war came to an end. Prussia, Spain, the Dutch, the Portuguese all came to a peace arrangement everyone except for George III and Great Britain having seen that France was a republic and the fact that France had ousted their royal family meant that George III would never really accept peace with the French he was never going to accept them he never liked them he never wanted to be part of anything they had do going on. He was not interested in France in on any capacity other than to they would they were just the enemy you know they would they were the enemy. There was no other word for the French at this time, and George the Third was never going to surrender or come up with a peace agreement with the enemy, and so ushered in a second version of the war which also involved America, Russia, um, and uh, Germany on the side of the British against France. Now, believe it or not, considering France helped America gain independence 20 years earlier, or yeah, 20 years earlier, you would think that in the late 1790s, America would probably want to return that favour, but they didn't. They, uh, they actually helped help the English, believe it or not. And um, this war ended in 1802. So this wasn't a very long war. It was the, the Second War of the French Revolution. Um, but it did cement Napoleon Bonaparte in 1802 as the leader of the French army. France conquered Italy or the main, uh, the, the north of Italy in an area called Tuscany and kept the Rhineland of Germany all the way up to the Rhine River. They were the dominant power on the continent of Europe. This ushered in a bit of peace in Europe in 1802, a peace that would last all the way until 1804 <laughs> so an entire year of no wars in Europe and that was the year of 1803 so not much to talk about there and in 1804 Napoleon Bonaparte got rid of the French Republic and named himself Napoleon the First Emperor of France so now the next era is when the Napoleonic Wars started And Napoleon made himself enemy number one. Now we can't talk about the 1780s to 1790s going into the 19th century without talking about Ireland. For those of you who are aware of Ireland and Ireland's rich history with England, the history that mm, probably, not probably, definitely is uh, more English favoured than Irish, um, you will be well aware of the rebellion in 1798. Now, this is one thing that irritates me. Throughout history, is that we call it a rebellion, and um, the same goes for the Indian rebellion, um, and 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 other rebellions throughout history. But the the fact of the matter is, the Irish people were being suppressed by the English to a massive, massive disadvantage to the Catholic um, and Presbyterian people of Ireland. In fact, it was that bad that uh, they they decided to rise up against an army and fight back. Now, a rebellion to me, when I look at uh, a rebellion... I would say the American Revolution is a rebellion or was a rebellion on the basis that they were British citizens or British people, and they were many of them were British immigrants who left Britain to go to America um, fighting the British army. When you conquer a land with its own people. Um, like we had with Ireland, like we did with India, that's not a rebellion. That is people standing up for their own country. Um, So to me, calling it the Irish Rebellion um, or the Irish Revolt of of 1798 in Wexford, um, it doesn't sit right with me. Um, To me, it was the Irish standing up for their their own country um, and it's again with the American revolution I, I, I suppose you could use that um, as, as a, a basis you know a lot of these men were first generation or even second generation American um, but I meant more on the basis that had the native Americans been the ones to start the American revolution then it would not be a rebellion it would be the American Native Americans standing up for their own land. When it was British people trying to kick Britain out of America, then it's it's more of a rebellion. But the Irish Rebellion almost succeeded. And it almost succeeded because the French helped out. The French sent an expeditionary force to the west coast of Ireland, which helped out with the rebellion in Wexford, they also sent a second, much larger force to Ireland as well. Luckily for the British, this was stopped by the Royal Navy. Had it not have been stopped, and France was able to have a trade route into Ireland, they would have a very, very easy hop over the Irish Sea into Wales to take England from the mainland. Obviously, there is the Channel... Um, Which would mean that they would be able to fight on two fronts and would make England very, very vulnerable. Now, the English came very close to losing Ireland. Very, very close. And the main reason that the Irish were rebelling was that the Catholic majority in Ireland was being suppressed, majorly. Catholics weren't allowed to sit at the Irish Parliament, for example, which meant the majority of the country being Catholic, the Catholics weren't allowed to vote. Uh, not sorry, not allowed to vote. Were not allowed to create laws or things like that for their own country. Um, the after this rebellion, the English got rid of that and allowed Catholics to to sit in Parliament. They also relaxed some of the laws, some of the taxes as well. And they realised very quickly that. Ireland being a Catholic country would probably vote in more Catholics and therefore the Irish Parliament would then become a majority Catholic and would cause even more problems for England. So in eighteen oh one they got rid of the Irish Parliament and said If you want MPs, you can vote for them, but you send them to Westminster and you stay sit in the British Parliament which meant that they could send 20 MPs that were all catholic but when the house of commons has 300 plus seats their 20 catholic votes don't mean anything um and that's what they did you know they that's how they suppressed ireland again in the 1800s we'll flick forward to 1804 and the start of the napoleonic wars Now, we know the Napoleonic Wars as Napoleon being defeated by the British at Trafalgar and Waterloo. They are the two main battles that the British know. Um, Waterloo we haven't yet covered, so that will be an interesting one for you guys to listen to. But Napoleon was a very shrewd leader. He conquered most of Italy... He conquered Naples. He conquered Germany. He conquered Prussia. He put his brother as king of Spain. Essentially, Napoleon owned and controlled everything from the Portuguese border all through Spain, all through France, all the way through Germany, Poland, and all the way up to the Russian border. He pretty much owned... The entire mainland Europe. And only Britain was realistically standing in his way. Luckily for the British, they still owned the seas. The Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 cemented this, destroyed the French fleet. Napoleon actually said, If I can control the English Channel for one week... I can control the world, and that is how important the English Channel is. Without that, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, without without defending that, we wouldn't have had our country, because Napoleon's force was easily big enough to overrun England. Problem is, he couldn't get here. So, considering much of his reign george iii was involved in some sort of war there was so much more going on the industrial revolution had started the invention of the spinning jenny the invention of the steam engine the start of vaccines the smallpox vaccine was invented under george iii's reign the difference in agriculture the crop rotations, livestock selections, breeding selections, all things that came into fruition under George III's reign. And George III, for example, was so interested in farming and how to create a decent farming industry in Britain, he actually got the nickname Farmer George. George III also helped to end slavery now he was well aware that slavery was a money maker for britain okay now there's no denying that many towns and cities across england and the and the world were created on the back of slave money george iii was an abolitionist he was quoted in 1750 saying that slavery is abhorrent and has no place in today's society. That's in 1750. Now, it did take till 1804, 1804 for Britain to abolish slavery throughout the empire. Um, but George Third was a man who believed that no matter how much money something makes you, if it's causing suffering and harm to other people, then it's not worth it. And that is exactly what he did. He was a pioneer behind ending slavery. And yes, it did take more time than what it probably should have done. And, you know, he followed the French. The French abolished slavery in 1797. So it did take him a few years after that to uh, to actually enforce this in in britain the reason for that is towns like liverpool bristol um you know these these sort of naval towns were purely built upon the slave trade they relied on the slave trade to survive and he was well aware of the fact that if these weren't sorted in the right way then he would have a lot more problems on his hand. Luckily, he was able to come up with a solution, and like I said, "In it was 1807, I do apologise, not 1804. In 1807, he was able to sign in the Slave Act and abolish slavery throughout the British Empire. He then spent somewhere around the equivalent of around £10 million pounds. In enforcing, this was this went ahead. Uh, The British Royal Navy was stationed uh, in Africa, very, very commonly, to stop slave ships. Okay, so obviously there were a lot of countries that still used the slave trade, that still relied upon the slave trade. Um, Many, many countries in Africa. relied upon the slave trade Um, in fact one of the biggest slave owners in the 1800s was actually an African uh, king and you know the slave trade was essential to the African economy and George and the British Royal Navy made sure that to the best of their ability any slave ships leaving Africa in the 1800s was to be stopped and turned around and have the cargo or the the men and women on board returned to their homeland this obviously put a lot of strain on the British army, on the British navy um, especially when we're talking about they were in the middle of, of a war um, but This is something that he felt strongly about and something that he made sure happened throughout the British Empire. George III was the pioneer behind the British Library. He amassed a collection of around 65,000 books, over 19,000 pamphlets, and the biggest collection of maps and charts ever assembled by one man. The British Library is still there today. In fact, if you go into the British Library, there is encased in a glass cabinet that goes all the way from the the ceiling all the way down to the floor. His library behind closed doors, but on display for people to see. And it is a massive, massive collection of books obviously the british library now has a lot more books but when we're talking 1800s a collection of 65,000 books was a very very impressive feat and he was essential in creating one of the greatest libraries in the world not only he collected books he was a keen art collector Uh, He actually helped found the Royal Art Society, which is a society of art collectors that is still going today. The Napoleonic Wars ended in 1812 at the Battle of Waterloo and the Russians, the Prussians and the Austrians pushed the French all the way back to France and reconquered all the land that Napoleon had won Uh, over the last 15 years unfortunately for George III he was in no state to celebrate this his last public appearance was in 1810 at his 50th golden jubilee celebration just a week later his wife would die he went mad and was not seen in public, for another 10 years. In fact, he was actually not seen alive for ever again by the public. Now, he had many demons in those last 10 years, many issues going on, and many rumours and problems that were going on with his family. Um, one of his sons, had there was a Scandal regarding a dead valet who turned up. There were scandals about one of his sons selling arms to the French. There was another scandal about George the IV, uh, his heir apparent, and his wife potentially giving birth to an illegitimate son. Uh, now these rumours were squashed, but when you add all of this together and you then add in the death of his wife uh, just a week after his golden jubilee. Um, he just went into a pit of despair and and basically spent the last 10 years of his life just uh, just locked in in the Windsor Castle. Um, he was very, very in, unstable. Britain was in a, a good place, and they were able to come through this they were able to um, transition into a a position with no king Um, essentially they had a king on the basis that he was still alive uh, from 1810 up until his death on the 29th of January 1820 Um, he was still king um, but Realistically, his, his son George the Fourth, the heir apparent, took on the main day to day duties of becoming the king, um, and essentially, Britain didn't fall into such a traumatic state as you might think. And this is mainly due to the fact that there was a nice balance between the royal and the parliament. Had there not been that link together. I think we would have had a few more problems again added to the fact that from 1812 the war in France was over Britain was still the dominant force in the world you know it, it, when you think of a king going mad for 10 years and you, you go back to through history you think well if they've got no king you know they would crumble um, but Britain had a good structure in place that was meant that they could survive and carry on through these troubled times and like i said unfortunately george iii did die in january 1820 after 60 years on the throne making him the longest reigning british king of all time um there are a lot of there is a lot of detail in that podcast a lot of things that could be done on their own episode. Napoleon can be done as an episode, for example, William Pitt the Younger, Lord North. You could even do an episode on the Revolutionary War, the Napoleonic Wars, Battle of Waterloo. Um, there's so many things that that happened during his sixty years on the throne. And I hope I've got enough of it down. Now, to me, George the Third. He's one of the greatest English kings or British kings um, throughout history. His story is fascinating. The fact that we wouldn't have things like the British Royal Library, the Royal Arts Society, Buckingham Palace, the Industrial Revolution, um, agriculture, um, just so many things that he had his his hands in for the 60 year reign or for at least the 50 years that he was capable of of dealing with them he really had an amazing reign and saw so many things you know the in the american revolution the irish revolution the um the french revolution he saw the first he was the first ever king of australia he was the last ever king of america he was King, when we burnt down the White House in 1814, he was the king that ended the slave trade. He was, you know, there was so much more to him than just the last king of America. Um, But unfortunately, George III is remembered as the mad king, or like I said, the last king of America. So I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode. Um there you know there's so much more detail that we can go into on this. Um but obviously when you're restricted to an hour or roughly an hour podcast. I know I've overrun this one, but um we don't want to to keep you guys bored. <laughs> you know, I like you guys coming back and I do find when you do these really long episodes sometimes people do switch off. So um let me know what you thought of this episode. This is a different one for me, um because of the amount of detail that's in it, and strangely enough, like a, you know when you think back to the Henry the Eighth episode, which many people I think were expecting this amount of detail in, there really isn't that much detail to talk about with Henry the Eighth. Henry the Eighth is famous because of what he did, uh, but what he did was not that much. What George the third did is not what he's famous for he's famous for going crazy and that's pretty much it um, and he's he's underrated he's an underrated king as far as I'm concerned and um, a very good king as as far as I can see so let me know what you thought let me know what you think of George III you know, do, do you agree, was he a good king was he a bad king could he have ended slavery a lot earlier I think he probably could Um, i don't think there was a call for it in the country but he certainly could have done it a lot quicker than he he could have done um or a lot quicker than he did especially when he was an abolitionist he was completely against it um but you know do we give him credit for for ending it or do we criticize him for not ending it sooner i don't know i'll leave that one with you guys well what do we think of the episode um i hope there wasn't too much uh America bashing in that one um, but I do like to have a little bit of banter with you guys because uh, I think that's that's quite funny I had a bit of banter with the Aussies as well saying they're a penal colony which uh, you know, uh, luckily you don't need a criminal record to get into Australia anymore so that's, uh, that is one advantage but be honest everything there does try and kill you um, even a boomerang is designed to kill so you know <laughs> that tells you everything um, but yeah so well, you know, I do like to have a bit of a laugh when I do these podcasts, and there is never any malice behind anything that I say. So please, always bear that in mind. If I have offended anyone or I have annoyed someone, because some of you guys have private messaged me, I have had it a couple of times where people have posted things on the group um, saying that I, you know, I'm being offensive. If I'm being offensive, come and talk to me privately. Um, and I'll explain my point of view as to why I said that. The one advantage or the one disadvantage you guys will have is everything I say I will back up with a fact or two, which uh, isn't very well liked at the moment with uh, certain political parties. If you can back up what you're saying, so. Yeah, just uh, be aware if, if I have offended you, just come to me personally and and we'll uh, we'll discuss it. But I don't think I have. I think it's been all all in jest and all a bit of banter. And and you know I've got to got across to you guys one of the greatest stories of one of the greatest Britons that have ever lived. So yeah, there we go. The royal king, the first German king to be born in England, George the Third the last king of america hope you all enjoyed it join me on patreon join me on facebook join me via email twihpod at gmail.com this week in history on facebook this week in history on patreon five dollars a month if you do want to join me on there i will thank you forever if you join me on patreon uh you guys are the best of the best i do have quite a lot of fans Uh, We've got over a thousand of you guys coming back week in, week out to listen to these podcasts. So thank you very, very much for that. And stay tuned for that wonderful episode 100 um, with me and my dad. Um, It's going to be emotional. So uh, look forward to that one. And remember, guys, we all have history. Make yours great. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
1: After Justin Bieber teamed up with Tim Hortons to create Tim Biebs, he knew his job wasn't done. So he's bringing Tim Biebs back and pairing them with his delicious new French Vanilla Biebs brew, steeped for 16 hours. That's 16 long, pensive, dedicated hours. But hey, take it from Justin. It's worth the wait. Try my new French Vanilla Biebs brew for a limited time, only at Tim Hortons. Order it with your favorite Tim Beebs for the perfect pairing at participating U.S. restaurants while supplies last. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Welcome to America, the land of junk sleep, where it's bedtime, but you're double booked. Here, there's always one more deadline to meet, episode to watch, or meme to share. The world may not want you to sleep, but we do. Only the sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help you find the right bed at the right price. Unjunk your sleep. In-store or online at MattressFirm.com today. In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold cold brew, and not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold-brewed. With Duncan's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Duncan. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.